if you thought it was disgusting in the tent of the evil pouches of fraud, <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. We're about to have it get much more disgusting on us. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and that was hardly an opening to make anyone want to listen to Dante's Inferno step-by-step and on through the comedy bed. Hey, if you are this far into the journey, you know that there are passages of Inferno that are not exactly pleasant, and we have certainly come to one of those passages. We're in Canto 29 of Inferno. We're going to be at lines 73 through 108 in my English translation. You can find this on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. We are in the tenth of the Malabolgia, the evil pouches that make up the giant eighth circle of fraud of hell. We have already seen that this is some kind of hospital setting with invalids piled on top of each other. And now we're going to get a full and up close look at these last fraudsters in the final of the evil pouches. Here we go. Canto 29, lines 73 through 108. I saw a pair propped up against each other, like a pan against a pan, propped up to dry. Both of them were pocked with scabs from head to foot. I've never seen a stable boy who's kept his master waiting, or who wants to get off to bed, work his curry comb so fast as each of these plied the teeth of his nails on himself to get rid of the rabid itch, which has no other method for relief. Their fingernails ripped off the scabs the way a knife can clean the scales off a sea bream or off other fish with even larger scales. You there, ripping at your chainmail coat, began my master to one of them, and sometimes even making pincers out of your fingers. Tell us if there are any Italians among those gathered here, so that your nails may prove an eternal tool for this sort of work. We're both Italians whom you see ruined like this, one replied in tears. But who are you to ask anything about us? My guide answered, I'm the one who descends with this living man from rim to rim, and I intend to show him hell. At that, they stopped propping each other up, and each one all a twitter turned to me, along with the other guys who'd overheard him as if only an echo. My good master sidled up close against me and said, Say to them anything you want. And so I began, since he'd wished me to. In order that the memory of you cannot be stolen from the minds of men up in the primary world, but can go on living under many a sun, Tell what you are and who your people are. Your horrid and nauseating pain shouldn't make you afraid to reveal yourselves to me. A rather disgusting passage, as I already told you. (laughs) We've come across the first two of many sinners in this tenth of the Malabolgia. These of the damned are caught in a particularly wild and weird and strange and scary 
problem in this pit. And I want to talk a lot about that in this podcast. I also want to talk to you about saving your humanity, which is what I think the final pit of fraud is truly about. But before that, let's work our way through some of the details in this passage. There are a couple echoes and contrasts in this passage with what's come immediately before us. The first contrast is that these two are working very hard and very fast. The passage says, I've never seen a stable boy who's keeping his master waiting or who wants to get off to bed work his curry comb so fast as each of these plied the teeth of their nails on himself to get rid of the rabid itch. I mean, they're descabbing themselves. They're pulling off their scabs with their nails as fast as they can. They are really working at it hard. And we should say that this is a big contrast to what just came before. Remember the passage just before in the previous episode of this podcast, we saw bodies laid on top of bodies. We saw people leaning against each other. They all seemed to be very languid, crawling along on all fours. They were so diseased in this pit. And while it's true that they are slow moving, and these two, in fact, aren't moving at all. They're just propped against each other. They're still working very fast. The visual is very fast motion. I think this is an important bit of what we have already discussed in this podcast, gothic juxtaposition that is showing two antinomies or two opposites right against each other to further the meaning of both. By showing here the fast itching, we emphasize how slow and languid the pit is. And because the pit is so languid, it further highlights this rabid itching that's going on. I mean, this attempt just to scratch as hard as possible. This is that gothic juxtaposition theory of uh, what we talked about it in terms of cathedral faces. You don't put a virgin on the cathedral without putting a demon somewhere near her, or you put a saint on the cathedral face, and then you put a demonic representation somewhere near the saint, because the juxtaposition of the saint and the demon makes each of them mean more. A saint alone means less than a saint in contrast to a demon. So it goes here. The slowness of the move around the pit is in direct contrast to the rapidity with which they're itching themselves and pulling the scales. I mean, it's really disgusting, right? I will tell you that I can... <laughs> I completely relate to these people because oh, I have a thing with itchy skin and I have a thing with mosquito bites. And sometimes I bring my husband Bruce a hairbrush if there's a mosquito bite, say, on my back. <laughs> I expect him to take the hairbrush to it. And he, oh, gosh, this is telling you way too much. But I'll just tell you that his standard question to me is blood or no blood, meaning does how hard shall he scratch at my back with the hairbrush? And generally, the answer is blood. So there you go. I have a problem with itchy scabs and all this kind of stuff. Ugh. So I understand exactly what's going on here. The need to get rid of it as fast as possible. Okay, so that's that's the contrast with the the slowness of the pit, the, the, the rapidity of the itch. But there's also a callback here when Virgil says, I'm the one who descends with this living man from Rim to rim, and I intend to show him all of hell. That's what Virgil said in the schismatics. And remember, they also stopped, except they stopped in wonder and momentarily forgot 
their pains. And we talked about this kind of epistemology, or if you really want to get fancy, theology of wonder that will start to become a dominant theme of comedy. Here, it doesn't seem like they stop in wonder, but you'll note that everybody does suddenly turn to the pilgrim and look at him. I don't know if it stops them from itching so much, although you will see in subsequent passages in this canto that they don't seem as intent at pulling their scabs off as they are in this passage. So perhaps there is a way that the epistemology of wonder, that is how you know what you know, and you know it through wonder in Dante's rubric, how you know what you know through wonder is working even here. All right, let's talk about those opening images in the passage. It starts, I saw a pair propped up against each other, like a pan against a pan, propped up to dry. This is often cited by various critics as extremely homey. Everybody talks about how these are very homespun images. And I just want to stop and quibble with that. These are not homespun images. An average medieval... (laughs) living in their hovel does not have two pans. Neither do they have a stable boy with a curry comb. These images are rather aristocratic. They are at least from the merchant class, if not better. So many Dantistas talk about this as if it's pastoral imagery that is in some kind of gross contrast to the disease that's going on. It's more up class than that. Two pans? How many people have two pans in the Middle Ages? How many people have a stable boy with a curry comb? Not so many. The warlords with whom Dante is staying, yes, those, but others, no. So I want to quibble with this and say that many critics forget the economics here. True, in my kitchen, there are several pans and I could prop them against each other. But I don't have a stable boy who's working a curry comb on my horse. So yeah, I guess it's homey a bit for me. But again, let's think about this much more in terms of merchant class, aristocratic. These seem to be well-to-do people brought low and that will play out more in the passage. So let's not overstate the pastoralness of these opening images. Yes, they come out of domesticity, but uh, particularly upmarket domesticity. We should also note that they're taking off their scabs with their fingernails, and it goes on in this same upmarket way, the way a knife can clean the scales off a sea bream. Come on, if you're a peasant living in central Italy, to get fresh fish, that's not an easy task, to say the least. You are well off to have fresh fish on your table. So again, up market. It may be domestic, but up market. But there may be a further point here. While Hollander overemphasizes Robert Hollander, the now late eminent Dantista at Princeton, while Robert Hollander overemphasizes the hominess of this scene, he does say something that's interesting. He says that the common imagery here, that is pans and stable work and cleaning fish, the common imagery helps us believe Dante's poetry is true or even real, as opposed to Ovid's ant 
metamorphosis. Remember in the last passage, we had the reference to Abed and the contagion that wiped people out and the whole people were brought back to life from ants. And I said that there's a phrase in there that Singleton and others believe indicates that Dante thinks that this is just a fable. It's not true. Well, Hollander's claim then is that if that seems like a fable to Dante, then in the poet's work, by turning to these domestic images, he's emphasizing the hominess and the truth of his own poetry. Although, and we have to keep remembering this, Dante is as much a fabulist as Ovid. They are (laughs) both completely fabulous. And while I'm stopped there on that notion of, you know, the reality claims of the narrative, let me make a rather high-end literary point that may help you understand how this works. For centuries of criticism, what I'm about to tell you was not the truth in terms of Dante, but it has now become almost a commonplace in modern, or should I say postmodern, literary analysis of the comedy. There are two narratives going on simultaneously in the text. Nobody from the 1700s or 1800s would have ever felt this. But in our world in which we so value meta constructions, when we value when the plays talk about themselves, we value when characters suddenly become aware that there are characters inside of a drama. I just led a book discussion on Philip Roth's The Counterlife, and at the end of The Counterlife, there's a moment in which one of the characters actually writes a letter and takes her leave of the narrative. That super meta-literary stuff, we're very attuned to that now, and so now we tend to see it this way. And here it is. There is a a narrative of the journey. That is the pilgrim's walk. The walk from bit to bit, from pouch to pouch, from bridge to bridge, from sin to sin. The walk across the known universe. And that's the narrative, the story, the narrative of the journey. But at the same time, inside of comedy, there is also the narrative of of the fiction. That is the story of how the fiction is becoming itself. The story of how the story is being built. And we came across a couple passages with that in it uh, in the previous episodes of this podcast in that uh, that uh, that whole question about where does the ministress of justice record the deeds? And I said Hollander's solution is that the answer is in Inferno. Well, that then would be the narrative of the fiction. There are two narratives running here. The narrative of the journey going across hell and the narrative of the fiction. And part of the narrative of the fiction here would be an increase in the claims of the fabulist, of making it up. And this is plagued fraud all along. This entire eighth circle has been full of meta-literary problems. Why? Because we know from the very beginning of this circle of fraud that Dante swears 
on comedy on his own book that he actually did see the beast of fraud Garion. the entire pit of fraud has been a meta fiction about the making of fiction we're going to talk more about that at the end of this episode let's just push on through into the passage it goes on with Virgil. He says, you there, ripping at your chainmail coat, and sometimes even making pincers out of your fingers, tell us if there are any Italians among those gathered here so that your nails may prove an eternal tool for this sort of work. Here's a good question for you. What disease do these guys actually have? And believe it or not, this has troubled commentators for centuries. We're going to find out just ahead of us, that one of them is going to be defined as a leper. Given that, then the question is, do they have leprosy? Certainly, early commentators thought that they're suffering from leprosy. And I know when you think leprosy as in Hansen's disease, the disease in which pieces of your body fall off, good God, there is a kind of wider definition of leprosy in the Middle Ages. The 13th century encyclopedist Bartholomeus Anglicus claimed that there were at least two forms of leprosy. One, the type you know, where pieces of your body fall off, and the other, a serpentine leprosy, where you're covered with scabs, and the scabs slowly eat away at your skin. Whoa. Wow, this is getting gross. That could be what's going on here. Dante could be making use of another form of leprosy. I don't have any smoking gun to suggest that Dante read this 13th century encyclopedia. I can just tell you that the knowledge was running around. Many more contemporary critics think that these guys are suffering from scabies. That is, uh, you know, they're malnourished and they're, they're suffering from scabies and they're scratching off the skin lesions from scabies. Eleonora Stopino, the dentista at the University of Illinois, thinks that actually, despite everything else, they are suffering from rabies. And she gets that from the line that says, each of them worked his curry comb so fast, he plied the teeth of his nails on himself to get rid of the rabid itch. And there's a rabies reference there. And when we go on down in this pit and open into the 30th canto, we're going to see an instance that well could be rabies in action. So she thinks that many of these sinners are caught with rabies, a disease that was particularly prominent in the Middle Ages. Let me just say, in any event, no matter what they have, leprosy, a form of leprosy, scabies, rabies, whatever they've got, in the medieval context, this is scary stuff. In the Middle Ages, everybody is deathly afraid of contagion and illness. I just read an article about Game of Thrones and, you know, they're making a new prequel to Game of Thrones and shooting it. And apparently they got a great deal of flack in the original Game of Thrones for the way women's sexuality was treated. That is, women seem to be more in control of their sexuality in the original Game of Thrones. And so now apparently the 
producers in an attempt to build a more realistic medieval landscape in the prequel are going to foreground the problems of women's sexuality, women as objects in the Middle Ages. Okay, well, that's a great realism claim. But you know what? (laughs) If you're going to try to show a medieval landscape and half of your characters are not dying of diarrhea and a quarter of them don't have some form of edema, which they would call dropsy, some form of edema, if, if that's not happening in your medieval landscape, then your medieval landscape isn't real. The Middle Ages were a plague factory, not just bubonic plague, but all sorts of contagions. This is a particularly nightmarish pit for anyone in the Middle Ages. You want to stay away from anyone who's sick for fear you get it. Let me just push it one bit more. Illness changes you. Illness fundamentally changes who you are. I helped my dad last summer die of hepatocellular cancer. And as I helped him die over several months, I could not believe the changes in his character, in his person, in how he looked. Illness fundamentally changes you. Illness, and here I'm going to push it so that we get ahead a bit in the passage. Illness is personal alchemy. It changes you, not from lead to gold, but from gold to lead. There's no question about it. I have a friend who is now on her third round of chemo, and she's on a particularly virulent chemo right now. The difference in the way she looks now from how she looked a year ago when she started chemo, it's astounding. She doesn't look like the same person. Her face looks different. Her body looks different. Illness and its treatments change you fundamentally. And that metamorphosis is sitting down in this pit, which will do a better job at the nightmare of metamorphosis than that pit of the thieves, because that was all about literary rivalry with Ovid. This is personal. This is how you die in the Middle Ages, sick from some horrid contagion. Virgil says, tell us if there are any Italians among those gathered. Notice that we're away. We've moved now away from the Ulysses-Guido split that happened way back in the 8th of the Malabolgia. Remember, Virgil wanted to address Ulysses because he was the classical figure. And then when Guido de Montefeltro showed up, Virgil said essentially dismissively to Dante, you take care of him because he's Italian, so you talk to him. He's not a classical figure, Virgil is now addressing them, asking if there are Italians. And let me just say that a lot of people have said that this is a slippage in Virgil's character, but I don't think so. I think Dante's genius lies in the notion that Virgil is not an allegory of reason, nor is he an allegory of how far human thought will take you, nor is he a mythic hero out of the past, some classical mythic hero poet. No. Virgil is a fallible, changeable, great 
poet. That is the very genius of Virgil in comedy. He gets it wrong at times. He changes his mind as here. He alters his perspective. He kind of wants to take center stage with Ulysses. Here, he still wants to take center stage, although he knows these aren't classical figures. Virgil is a complicated, layered figure who is without a doubt a great poet. That is such amazing layering. When I taught that book discussion a few weeks ago on Philip Roth's The Counter Life, so many people were so obsessed with what a nightmare person Philip Roth was. And indeed, he was a nightmare person. And indeed, he did engage in a toxic form of masculinity. But Philip Roth is a great novelist, one who can outthink everybody else in the room and outright most people in the room. Philip Roth is a fallible, great novelist. It's hard for us even today to hold that because we want our greats to be infallible. Not so with Virgil. His character is changeable. It's altering. Virgil may give bad advice at times. And in fact, I think we're about to come up on one of the ways that Virgil, in fact, has given bad advice. The guys in the pit say we're both Italians, the two pans leaning against each other, who you see ruined like this. Now, we take it that given that a pan has a neck and a round part where the skillet or the pot is, that these guys have some kind of nasty dropsy with distended abdomens and their heads look like they're up on the handle of a pot. He, he says, we're both Italians, you see ruined like this, but who are you to ask about us? And the guide says, Virgil says, I am the one who descends with the living man from rim to rim to, and intend to show him hell. We talked about this, how this is an echo back to the schismatics. I thought they stopped propping up each other and each one all its would turn to me along with the other guys who'd overheard him as if only an echo. My good master sidled up close against me and said, say to them anything you want. And so I began. And this is the kicker. In order that the memory of you cannot be stolen from the minds of men up in the primary world, but can go on living under many a sun, tell what you are and who your people are. Your horrid and nauseating pain shouldn't make you afraid to reveal yourselves to me. Dante the Pilgrim asks, how is it that I can help you stay present in the living world, even though your fate is sealed in the afterlife? This, to me, is a moment of compassion. And the larger question of the tenth pit is how do you avoid losing your humanity even in hell? Fraud particularly, is about the loss of humanity. Fraudsters see other humans as only pieces in a chess game that they get to move around, whether it be buying papal offices, buying political offices, telling the future for coin, for the exchange of coin, whether it be splitting the the political body or the civic body or the church body apart through whatever you do. It's all about using others as a wedge for yourself. Ulysses with his crewmen 
It's seeing other people as tools. How then do you descend into the pit of fraud without losing your humanity? How do you descend into hell without losing your humanity? And Virgil preaches, and this is where I come back to Virgil, Virgil preaches tough love. He preaches, you know, that uh, that when Dante wants Philippe Argenti ripped apart in the river Styx, he hugs Dante. He tells Dante in front of the fortune tellers, don't be a fool. Only a fool would, would somehow doubt God's judgment. Okay, fine. Virgil preaches a very hard, tough love, as I guess a father figure fallible great poet would. But Dante, the poet, has a much more nuanced position for his pilgrim. His pilgrim is holding on to his humanity even here, wanting to know the personal stories of these people. And of course, you know right off that this is in our division earlier. This is the narrative of the fiction. If we have the narrative of the journey and the narrative of the fiction, this is the narrative of the fiction. I mean, how is their memory not going to get stolen up above, and how are they going to be remembered? <laughs> They're going to get put in Inferno. The poet's going to write about them. So this is more of the narrative of the fiction, and in, even in that meta-literary moment, I think Dante is cueing us that there are ways that even here, in the lowest depths of hell, it's possible to hold on to your humanity as the pilgrim. And one of the ways that that's true is a genuine and honest interest in the sufferings of others. But it's even more meta than that. The pit of fraud, as I said, is deeply connected to poetry, Garion, squaring on comedy, all through the circle of fraud. We've been worried about metapoetics. The question is also, how do you hmm, present poetry about nightmarish things without losing your humanity? Or let me put this in another way. How, as an artist, can you write about the nightmarish things of the human condition and not lose your humanity? Do you have to always go for the saccharine, for the sweet, for the cheery sitcom voice? No, you don't. You can write about the truth of contagion, the truth of fraud, You even for Dante, the truth of hell, and you can hold on to your humanity. How? You can imagine your own participation. Over and over again, the poet has the pilgrim participate in various instances of fraud and maybe even contribute to schism, death to your family, to Mosca, maybe even find himself at places in which he's becoming very close to the sinners. What is comedy except fortune telling, except future telling about the future troubles of Florence? What is it except a giant revelation of falsification? Well, how do you find your way out of that? You imagine your participation in it. You find yourself actually falsifying. You find yourself actually doing what these do. How else do you do it? You use justifiable anger. You get angry at the popes upside down in their holes. Your anger is completely justified, and you allow that anger to stick onto your humanity, not to repress it so that it becomes some, some kind of 
comedic sitcom nastiness where everything is happy. No, you hang on to your anger. But at the same time, you hang on to your fears, like here, the fear of contagion, like the fear of the demons getting you with the barriers. You hang on to your fears. You hang on to your rage. You hang on to the things that make humans humans, including connection, like here. Tell what you are and who your people are. You imagine not only your participation in the nightmare, but you imagine yourself legitimately interested in the participants of the nightmare. And of course, finally, it comes down to what we know, tempering talent with, as Dante put it, righteousness. As I might put it, tempering your talent with morality, tempering how you view the world, your capacious and beautiful artistic way to view the world, also with a conscious notion of where your moral limits lie and how you can operate inside those moral limits, even if you're changing the positions of the fence. I think that that's all going on in here. I think that's why we're contradicting Virgil. I think that's why we're feeling pity. This is particularly scary in a medieval context. That's, I think, the whole system of the 10th pit. We've come all the way through fraud. Now comes the big question. How do you hold on to your humanity in a landscape of fraudsters of which the whole world is surely a part? And if you write truly about this very human problem of using each other fraudulently, how then do you as an artist hold on to your humanity? Before we finish, let me read the passage one more time. No funny voices, no overlays, no background noises, just the passage itself. Canto 29, lines 73 through 108. I saw a pair propped up against each other like a pan against a pan propped up to dry. Both of them were pocked with scabs from head to foot. I've never seen a stable boy who's keeping his master waiting or who wants to get off to bed work his curry comb so fast as each of these plied the teeth of his nails on himself to get rid of the rabid itch, which has no other method for relief. Their fingers ripped off the scales the way a knife can clean the scales off a sea bream or off other fish with even larger scales. You there, ripping at your chainmail coat, began my master to one of them, and sometimes even making pincers out of your fingers. Tell us if there are any Italians among those gathered here, so that your nails may prove an eternal tool for this sort of work. We're both Italians, whom you see ruined like this, one replied in tears, but who are you to ask about us? My guide answered, I'm the one who descends with this living man from rim to rim, and I intend to show him hell. At that, they stopped propping each other up, and each one all the Twitter turned to me, along with the other guys who'd overheard him as if only an echo. My good master sidled up close against me and said, Say to them anything you want. And so I began, since he'd wished me to, in order that the memory of you cannot be stolen from the minds of men up in the primary world, but can go on living under many a sun. Tell what you are, and who your people are, your horrid and nauseating pain shouldn't make you afraid to reveal yourselves to me. 
an astounding passage that moves from a disgusting moment of scraping scabs off all the way out to this, a moment, it seems to me, of compassion, in which both the poet and the pilgrim get done what they need to be done while preserving their own humanity. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, give it any rating you can. I really appreciate that. And mostly, I am thrilled we are on this journey together. Thank you for walking with me. This podcast has overwhelmed my life. I'll see you next time. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante.